it's a very harsh, cold winter, at least maybe it killed off some of the bugs. You know, there's another side to that story. We'll see. And certainly that'd be a good thing if it happened. We'll see if the cold winter killed off some of the bugs. The other side of the coin, as someone said. Or someone says, some, maybe some visitor to Tennessee says, man, you all in Tennessee have such a high sales tax. Your sales tax is so high. And we answer, yeah, but the other side of that is we don't have any income tax, you know. And that's a good thing. Then another side to the coin. Or someone has trouble with their computer. Oh, man, that's terrible. You know, when you have trouble with your computer, but someone says, yeah, but the other side of that coin is how would you like to go back to an old manual typewriter? You know, I don't want to do that either, right? So another side to the coin. A lot of times we talk that way, don't we? We say one thing, we, we, we mention one thing, and then we say, oh, but there's another side to that coin, or there's another aspect of that subject to be considered. This morning, we want to do that about some important spiritual truths. We want to talk about the other side of the coin, or that there are two sides to the coin. And we want to talk about several things that I hope you will agree are important that we need to consider. We stop here to say thank you for being present on this beautiful Lord's Day. It's hard to imagine a more beautiful day in Middle Tennessee than what we have today. And, and so we are blessed, not only with good weather, but also with the privilege of being able to assemble here together. And we should be thankful for our freedom and our opportunity and that we have such occasions as this. What a great blessing. Thank you for being a part of this. For any and all who are visiting with us, thanks for coming our way. And we hope you'll come back every time you have a chance. And please know that we are always open to your questions and we'd be glad to help with Bible study. If you see or hear anything this morning that confuses you or maybe even that you disagree with, please bring that to our attention and we'll sit down and study with you about that because we certainly want to be doing the right thing from the Word of God. Let's talk about two sides to the coin. Let me suggest to you one that I think is very significant, but also easy to observe in the Scripture. And that is the goodness and severity of God. Uh, Again, I think it's easy to see this with just a very little investigation of the Scripture. In fact, um, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. And so God is certainly a good God, but He is also a severe God. Some people, in fact, many people in our time want to see only one side of God, and specifically what they want to see is God's love and His mercy. And they want to talk about the great love of God. And and absolutely, yes, God is a great, good, and loving God. There's no doubt about that. But these people often want to ignore what he says about justice and judgment and punishment to those who are disobedient. Let's look at just a couple examples of the goodness and severity of God. For instance, go all the way back to the beginning. And as God had completed his creative work in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God's creative work is certainly an act of love for those of us whom he created. Think of the, the wonders of this natural world and universe that he placed us in. Certainly, he loved us in providing everything in his creation. The goodness of God. But notice the other side of the coin. The severity of God. Not much later in Genesis, when we get to the time of Noah, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 21, all, we're talking about the flood of Noah. All flesh died that moved upon the earth both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. Now, I want to tell you, 
we've got a good, loving God, but that's severe. I'm telling you, that's really severe, right? And so, to all of our friends in the religious world who want to emphasize exclusively the loving side of God's nature, and we agree wholeheartedly about the overwhelming love of God, you cannot ignore the severity of God. God is a God who demands obedience and punishes those who do not obey Him. Of course, the most emphatic example of God's love is seen in the sending of His own Son, Jesus Christ. In John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Talk about love. That's that's something that we I'm not sure we can even come close to comprehending. The incredible love of God in sending His own Son to be a sacrifice for sinful mankind. Certainly, God loved us in sending His Son. The goodness of God... But remember, there's a severe side to God too. Mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning verse 7, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's absolutely necessary for us to see both sides of the coin, to see both aspects of God, uh, and to teach them both, and to emphasize them uh, uh, both. Certainly, um, there are a lot of people who don't want to hear about the severity of God. But it's necessary for us to talk about it. To ignore it uh, doesn't make it go away. We can talk exclusively about the love of God, but that doesn't make the severity of God go away. It's still there. That's, uh, to just preach one aspect, to only talk about the love of God, is sort of like a man with a, with a hole in his roof, and he's not paying attention to it. It doesn't make it go away. Well, he says, you know, it's, it's, it's the sun is shining today. I've got a hole in my roof, but man, I got a, it's, it's a sunshiny day out there today. It's supposed to rain tonight, right? And so you, you can ignore it today, but it doesn't make the hole in your roof go away. And when it rains tonight, you'll pay the price. And the same thing would be true about emphasizing the goodness of God to the exclusion of the severity of God. It doesn't make the severity go away. We've got to know both aspects. Another thing of which there are two sides to the coin is in the matter of faith and works. Both are necessary. Unfortunately, some want to emphasize one thing, faith, to the exclusion of the other, works. Many of our religious friends right here in our own community want to talk about faith and say that it's possible for a person to be saved by faith only. Faith is all you need. And they completely want to ignore the necessity of obedient works. For instance, the book of discipline of the United Methodist Church says, wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. And so here are some of our denominational friends who very explicitly teach you're saved by faith. Notice the emphasis on the word only, faith only. Now, we're not denying that you have to have faith, obviously. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But when you add that word only to that statement, you're changing it, right? Uh, We are justified by faith only, they say, a most wholesome doctrine. The standard manual for Baptist churches by Hiscock says, baptism is not essential to salvation. I don't know how you can say it any plainer than that. Baptism is not essential to salvation. But it is essential, it goes on to say, to membership in the church. I always thought that was rather remarkable. It's harder to get into the Baptist church than it is to get into heaven. (laughs) Isn't that what that statement says? But you get the idea very plainly. 
You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to do any works of obedience. That's what they're teaching. It is salvation by faith only, but the Scriptures don't teach that. Hebrews 11, verse 6, but without faith it's impossible to please God. Do you have to have faith? Absolutely, yes. Without faith it's impossible to please Him. But for he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. This verse, which says it's impossible to please God without faith, goes on to describe that that faith must be an obedient, active faith. You have to diligently seek Him. There's something to do. You see, by the way, one of our memory verses, right? Keep remembering our memory verses. In James chapter 2, beginning verse 17, in this, uh, just a section out of that longer reading that Cole did for us earlier, James 2, verse 17, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James suggests that it's really impossible to demonstrate that you have faith if you're not busy working. You have to. The only way you can show that you have faith is if you are obedient. Obedient. Verse 24 there, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, we want to always emphasize that when we're talking about works here, we're not talking about works of merit by which we could earn or deserve salvation. We're not teaching that. We're sometimes misrepresented to suggest that we're doing things to earn our salvation. You can't earn your salvation. There are no works of merit whereby you could earn your salvation. But these are works of obedience, meeting the conditions of salvation set forth in the Word of God. And so there's two sides of that coin. Yes, faith is very important, but you can't ignore the necessity of obedient works. The Scriptures teach both. In fairly close conjunction with that, we could talk about grace and law. You know, there are a lot of people these days, and some of our own brethren, who are getting quite carried away on the subject of grace. And they're really emphasizing grace. Well, we think grace should be emphasized. Grace, as we have so frequently defined it, I think accurately so, grace is the unmerited favor of God. In other words, God's favor that is not deserved. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. But He gave us His favor anyway. It is the unmerited favor of God. And it's certainly true that God is a gracious God. We're not denying that. But some would say, therefore, since God is gracious and He gives His, his favor to us in an undeserved way, then there's, there's nothing for us to do. Just depend upon God's grace. That's not true either. A verse that they like to use to emphasize this is John 1, verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, the way they use this verse, I please want you to understand how they use it. I think they're wrong in using it this way. The way they like to use this is say, well, under the Old Testament, it was law. God gave the law by Moses, and so there were rules and commandments. You've got to do this. You can't do that. And they said that was the, a rigid system of commandment keeping under the Old Testament law. That's not that way anymore, they say. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Well, I think that certainly the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth came by Jesus Christ. And I believe contextually that's what John has in mind there. But to say there was no grace in the Old Testament is not even accurate, is it? Look at Exodus chapter 33. Verse 19, Exodus, the book of the law, where God was giving the law to Moses, right in this very context. God said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There was grace in the Old Testament, too. If grace is the unmerited favor of God, there were a lot of people who received 
favors from God that they didn't deserve in the Old Testament too. To say there was no grace in the Old Testament, it was all just rigid commandment keeping, is not accurate. There was grace in the Old Testament. Now bring that to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's grace too, right? Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. But in the Old Testament, there was grace and there was necessary obedient works, law to keep. In the New Testament, there's grace, but there's also obedience to provide law, rules to keep. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21, being not without law to God, but under law to Christ. It's called the law of Christ, after all. There's a law to keep. There are rules to keep. Even though we're under God's grace, there's still rules to keep. In James chapter 1, verse 25, by the way, another memory verse. James 1, 25, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Please emphasize again the idea of doing work. There is work that must be done. And so, uh, in regards to grace and law, we would say there's two sides of that coin. And both are important, and neither should be neglected. We have to see it both. All right. Another example of two sides or two aspects to a certain subject. I want to talk about what I'll identify here is sharpness and gentleness. And what I have in mind here specifically is in regards to our relationship with and our interaction toward those who are erring brethren. Will it happen that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who slip away, who fall away, who become unfaithful to the Lord? Unfortunately, yes. That certainly is true. It's not new to our day and time. It was true even in New Testament times. And so we will have to react sometimes to brethren who have fallen away. What do we do? Do we approach them with sharpness or do we approach them with gentleness? Well, actually, there's two sides of that coin. And we have to do both and know when it is appropriate. For instance, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The word overtaken here is an interesting one, interesting one in the verse, and it suggests sort of a, a slip or a misstep, uh, not intentional, not a planned and purposeful deviation from the truth. This man has become overtaken in a fault, and so we gently go to him with a, with desiring to restore him. I believe this verse would suggest gentleness in approaching someone who's been overtaken in a fault. But in a different passage, in Titus chapter 1, beginning verse 10, Paul says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Here, when he talks about unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, he's talking about people who are more intentional in their actions. And toward those who are intentionally doing that, which is not true to God, what do you do with them? Well, he said, you rebuke them sharply. And so we see there a, a different approach. And so we have to make a judgment. In Jude, verses 22 and 23, it says, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. You realize that Jude there was suggesting different situations require different approaches. Uh, not every situation is the same. And not every erring brother would be approached in the same way. We need wisdom to be able to make that judgment. And certainly it is a thing 
for us to pray about? How, what's the best way I could approach this brother or sister who's fallen away? And we could pray for God's wisdom to know how. Might use the example of attendance, something we often have to talk about. I want you to think about here. Here's a brother or sister who's failing to attend worship faithfully as, as we all should. How should we approach them? Well, look at this verse and then we want, we'll make the application toward attendance. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. All right. So, here's the matter of church attendance. And we've got this brother or sister who's not being faithful in attendance. Well, let's, let's think of an instance wherein the person knows better, but, but refuses to obey. Now, in that case, they would be among the unruly. Vine there says the word unruly suggests a spirit of insubordination. They know what they're supposed to do, and they, they intentionally don't do it. And so we're going to use sharpness there. We're going to admonish the unruly. But then we're to encourage the faint-hearted. You know, sometimes people just get worn down and discouraged and need encouragement. The word faint-hearted here would suggest that. Now, this person has just grown weary in the process. We knew of a woman, I think some of you knew of a situation where there was this woman and her husband didn't want her going to church services with the children. And so uh, he, he would put up every obstacle possible to keep her from going to church services on Sunday with the children. He even went so far as to go out into the car and raise the hood, unbeknownst to her, and took out a vital component. Back in those days, it was the ro- you, you fellows will remember the rotor in the distributor cap. He opened the distributor cap and took the rotor out. Well, a car won't run without the rotor in the distributor. And so he thought he would prevent her from going to services that way. And what she did is she just got the kids ready to start walking to church. The story is, of course, that she eventually won him over by her determination. But you can think about a wife, for instance, in a situation like that, just getting worn down and being discouraged. And so for such a person, what do you do? It's an attendance problem, right? She's not able to make attend, attend services as regularly as she would like or we would like to see. What do you do? Well, you encourage a person like that because they're dealing with hard times. It's not the same as the person who's insubordinate, unruly. This is a person who's just been worn down. and grows, So you're going to use a different approach, right? And some are just weak, uh, you know. Uh, some people are just weak, and, they, and, and they're willing to be taught, and they're willing to learn, and they're desirous to do better. And so such a person we help, such a person who is weak. Right, I think right there in that one verse, obviously this verse is not talking about church attendance, but I'm just using that as an example, how three different individuals, the, the, the manifestation of the problem might be the same in all of them. They're just not at church services as often as they ought to be. The reason behind it is different in each case, and so our approach to dealing with them is different as well. And so we suggest then there's two sides to the coin. In dealing with our brethren, sometimes we must use sharpness, and other times gentleness. Finally, let me suggest to you the categories of security and danger. There are some Christians who apparently see no danger at all that they might be lost. Uh, that, that nothing could happen to keep them from going to heaven. They see no danger. There are many others, I think, Christians who enjoy no comfort or assurance of their salvation. The Scriptures actually teach us both, and we need to see both sides of that coin. Can you fall? Is there a danger that a Christian could fall? 
Absolutely yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul said, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Is there a danger of falling? Yes. We need to emphasize that for us all. Do not become so complacent as to think that nothing could happen to cost you your salvation. Yes, you can fall. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, we face real danger. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Take heed, brethren. This was written to Christians, right? And what could happen? You could depart from the living God. A, a heart of unbelief could come and you could depart from the living God. So yes, there is danger, but while there is danger, there's also great promises of God. Like this one, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There had no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. That's a great promise. And God is the one who made that promise. He's not going to let, let us be faced with a situation that we can't handle. And so, while there's danger that we can fall, there's the great promise of God to help us in dealing with our temptations. Note another familiar text in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 5. And, and besides all this, giving all diligence. So in other words, work at this. Put forth real effort. Give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Notice, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. So, you put forth the effort, because there is danger, but if you put forth the effort, what's going to happen? You will not be barren or unfruitful. You will never fall if you put forth the effort. And so, in regards to the security that we have and the, and the confidence that we can have in our salvation. Yes, it's there, but we can't ignore that there's always the danger that we could fall away, therefore we have to be constantly vigilant. Well, you might think of several other spiritual subjects that we could add to that list, but what we're suggesting is you've got to be aware of both sides of the coin, both sides of the story. And in several of the things that we've talked about this morning, unfortunately, a lot of people just want to see one side of that, and they don't want to consider the other. And we're going to get the, the real full picture. We've got to look at both sides of that coin. Thanks for your good attention this morning. What's your situation as we're about to sing this song of invitation? Are you right with God? Have you done the things necessary in order to be in a covenant relationship with Him? If you're not a Christian yet, there are certain things that you've got to do based upon faith. As we said, you've got to believe that there is a God, but you also have to believe that He has put conditions upon salvation. Not that we would earn our salvation, 